Welcome to Sofa Security Chat Chat, episode 87 for April 5th, 2012. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and my guest this week is Mr. David Schwartzberg, who's a senior security engineer for us in lovely Chicago, Illinois. Welcome, uh, David. Hi, Chet. Thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. Good to have you back. Uh, Dave's a, an expert at Sophos from uh, the former Udamako team, which means he's one of our crypto experts. And so he's joining us to talk about the news this week. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the new things we're doing in cryptography to help protect your data. So I'm going to start out with the, the couple news stories that were reasonably large. Uh, we are seem to be having a second Mac virus malware Trojan outbreak. And this one's more serious than ones we've seen previously. So for those of you that haven't been following the news, about a week ago, we saw a Microsoft Office file that was booby-trapped that uh, exploited a vulnerability in Microsoft Office 2004 and 2008 for OS X. And unfortunately, a lot of Mac users uh, aren't so keen on the patching, even though there's an auto-updater application available for Office. uh, When the thing pops up, you know, people, oh, I'm busy, I'm writing a document, I'm doing my slides, get out of the way and close the thing. So we did see a reasonable number of people being exploited by it, but it was somewhat low impact. And I guess the news story there was, mm, you know, actual exploits for Mac, things exploiting vulnerable software, which you don't typically see on Macs. And it got a lot worse in the last 72 hours. Uh, there was a zero-day vulnerability in Java. Well, I guess it's not really a zero-day because Oracle fixed it back in February, but Apple hadn't deployed the updated Java for OS X to fix 2012-0507 as the uh, CVE number is. And uh, looks like, you know, over 600,000 Mac users were victimized by this in, a, in, in less than two or three days here. And uh, that's a pretty serious thing. Dave, you're a MacBook user, right? That's correct. I purchased my own personal MacBook a little over a year ago. And being a Sophos employee and definitely taking advantage of the Sophos free home use antivirus, I actually downloaded it and installed it and ran a scan while still in the store. Yeah, that that's actually um, a, a good point. We do have free antivirus for Mac. So there's really no excuse for Mac users who are concerned about their security to, of course, have protection on their Mac. Uh, anybody can download that for non-commercial use from www.sophos.com slash free Mac AV. In fact, we don't even ask for your email address, for your name. We're not trying to market to you or anything else. We're just giving you the gift of security. So uh, take advantage of that, folks. And of course, if you were running Sophos Antivirus for Mac, like David, then you wouldn't necessarily have been uh, hit by these things. We are detecting the vulnerability with an exploit identity, and we're detecting the different payloads with uh, a handful of different identities, depending on which website you get infected from. Amusing to me slightly. I guess it's never amusing when people are infected, but the information from Dr. Webb, which is a Russian antivirus firm uh, in the uh, part of the botnet that they sink hold with all these Macs in it, uh, about 250 plus of them showed up as Cupertino, California. So I wonder if there's some uh, some people panicking and running around over at Apple headquarters uh, dealing with some of the, the fallout from this as well. So I guess the advice we really need to give to Mac users here is one, uh, patches are really important, but you need proactive protection as well because the problem here is, you know, Apple sat on not patching this Java problem for over six weeks and that meant Mac users were vulnerable. Uh, they can't always rely on the vendor to be perfect and most Windows users have given up on Microsoft's record of perfection quite a long time ago, but Apple users need to realize that uh, no company is perfect. We all have flaws in our software and running, you know, preventative stuff like antivirus to be fair has very little impact. And actually, Dave, you know, we're going to 
talk about some of the new uh, AES encryption stuff in in the Safeguard product, the encryption product. And I, I kind of relate it to a very similar thing that we'll talk about more. You know, the impact of running antivirus on your Mac is kind of non-existent, right? You don't, it's not like this big burden. You know, when you're, you, I mean, you're running lots of apps and doing all this productivity stuff, I assume, for Sophos on your MacBook. I mean, is there really any impact from it? Not from the Sophos AV at all. And I also, for a lot of Sophos testing on my MacBook, I do, um, I did encrypt the drive first with things like file vault 2 and compared it to safeguard for mac and you're right there's really nothing noticeable uh, i did notice there's better security and if i do come across something that is a potential threat like i grabbed an old hard drive that i haven't used in years plugged it into my mac and lo and behold it found some malware on there and that's back prior in the Udemyco days so I'm, so I'm wondering when we were at Udemyco how much malware was slipping through yeah I, I actually saw somebody on Twitter today who installed our free Mac antivirus and went no I just want to make sure my Mac was safe and it turns out it found three viruses in my bootcamp partition <laughs> so it's a great way to scan your Windows side of your Mac if you're a bootcamp user because uh, it's a lot easier for us to clean up the nasties if they do get into your Windows partition when we're on the Mac side where we we can safely do it without having, you know, Windows actually running. The the second story that was big in the last week since the last chat chat is related to global payments. And there's a lot of confusion amongst folks I've talked to about this. They had a data breach, which uh, they're claiming impacted about 1.5 million credit card holders. Um, there's other evidence to suggest the number might be closer to 10 million. But the real issue here is uh, kind of back to data security. It's one of the reasons uh, I invited Dave to the podcast today. These guys, uh, what, what if you're not familiar with the payment processing business, you kind of have three people involved in a given transaction. I mean, you've got the, the card issuing bank, the Bank of America or Chase or whoever it is that issues the actual credit card. And then you've got the merchant themselves, which happens to be the local 7-Eleven or restaurant or whatever. And in between them, there's this thing called payment processors, which they kind of facilitate the transaction between the merchant and the card issuing bank to move the money back and forth between the two different sides of this. Uh, they were compromised and all of these, you know, this credit card information was stolen. There's all kinds of rumors and conjecture around it. Very little actual evidence to tell us what happened because they're keeping pretty Pretty, uh, tight lip about things. But, you know, when we're looking at the, the, the mass quantities of, of such sensitive data, clearly full disk encryption is, you know, useful for things like laptops and desktops and this kind of thing. What advice do you have for companies that are protecting sensitive data on their network? You know, what what's the best approach to prevent this type of thing from happening if you've got sensitive data, even if it turns out to not be 10 million credit cards? Well, there's a lot of different ways of approaching that. Uh, it really kind of depends how the data is being stored. If this data is in a flat file, there's 10 million credit cards, and, and there's no level of protection using encryption, I would say that's just a bad practice. If it's in a database, you can still encrypt your columns, but you can also tokenize the data. That would have offered some additional level of protection to get 10 million. It makes me very nervous because I don't know if my credit cards are in that lump of 10 million credit card numbers. And how do I find out if it is? Or are they even going to disclose it? Do I want to know? Well, the good news, David, I mean, at least from if you're a cardholder, you probably don't need to really worry. The, the information has been reported to MasterCard and Visa. They've contacted the card issuing banks to make sure that cards that were compromised are going to be canceled and replaced. Visa has zero liability fraud protection uh, on their cards. And I'm sure MasterCard will follow suit in making sure that consumers themselves aren't held responsible for any fraud that might result from this attack. But I want to go back to something you said about the tokenization. And I thought that these card processing companies had learned 
from previous incidents like what we saw at Heartland a few years ago where, you know, this tokenization is a really effective technique to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen. And, you know, Heartland kind of has established uh, almost a gold standard. I mean, after their compromise, they went back and now, you know, instituted all kinds of practices to make sure that not only does it not happen, but they're raising the bar uh, on how they handle security as a whole and kind of leading the industry a bit on it. Uh, Can you explain what this token is? What does that mean? What is tokenization and how does that help protect the data? Tokenization of data is creating a unique identifier to something like a social security number without actually revealing the social security number. So whenever there's an application that needs to call the social security number, it would then have to use the token after it's validated or authenticated to be able to access the tokenized identifier. And then it can reference that social security number without actually using it. Thanks. I, I think that, I, and I think that's, you know, a, an excellent approach to handling sensitive information like credit cards and PII. So, uh, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to really find out about what happened at Global Payments because they're being quite evasive in their press opportunities. But uh, regardless, if you're storing this kind of data, you should be looking at techniques like tokenization or encryption or depending on, you know, is the data in motion? Is it being stored? Is it in a database? But look at this stuff very carefully. There are solutions to these problems. These are not insurmountable issues. The last story I wanted to talk about is a positive thing. And I was quite happy to see Adobe last week had to release an out-of-band version of Flash to fix some new vulnerabilities, which is not a good thing, of course. But the good thing was they finally have completed their automatic silent updater technology for the Flash product, where you can now, when you install the latest version of Flash, it comes up and it goes, do you want me to just keep myself up to date and stay in the background and just do it? Uh, And and the answer is yes. Why on earth would I not want to keep my Flash up to date? And, uh, you know, should more applications take this approach? I mean, we do this with antivirus, right? I mean, as an end user of Sophos antivirus, you don't have to worry about updating your engine every month or your identities every hour and a half when Sophos Labs publishes something. I think it's a really good approach to take from the majority of applications. I don't think every application really should operate this way silently and so stealthily. Really, I think it's um, like anything else. It's a hybrid approach of being stealthful, getting the updates done, don't impact the user, but then also, depending upon the context, you might have to also delay the update and let that be authorized by somebody who is actually inspecting it. Yeah, and, and that's what, you know, Adobe's doing with Flash as well. And that, I mean, the thing comes up and goes, how do you want me to behave? Do you want to manually always apply your updates? Do you want me to silently just do it and not even tell you? Or do you want a pop-up to come up saying, there's an update available, would you like to do it now? So they're providing flexibility and options. And I think you're exactly right about context. Things that have a large attack surface or frequently the reason for causing pain in your world when it comes to vulnerabilities and malware and things like this, I think should be somewhat automatic. And I think about things like uh, somebody's WordPress blog being, a year out of date with WordPress updates and getting infected. Yeah, when it's something like that, absolutely. And I haven't really met anyone that's ever said, I love when I get the pop-ups and the bubbles. I just can't wait for the next. So the reason I brought you uh, on the chat chat today is we just had a a recent product launch of Safeguard Enterprise 6. You know, I don't talk about products much on the podcast, but I thought there were two particularly interesting things in this release that we could share with the chat chat listeners. Uh, One is related to what you were calling AESNI. What is AESNI and why do I want it? AESNI is the Advanced Encryption Standard New Instruction Set from Intel. What they've decided to do was they put seven new instructions that are comprising this AES&I to accelerate encryption and the decryption, so that's definitely the I.O. of uh, reading a file from an SSD or a platter that's encrypted, what does that translate into? That translates into, very generically, overall better performance, 
for anyone that's using any type of full disk encryption by Sophos or any of the cryptographic solutions that we have because it's all a part of the same engine. So whether you're, you're encrypting your hard drive, your memory stick, files on your server or in the cloud or wherever, you're going to be able to leverage AES and I. The trick is if the chip supports it, we have actually a knowledge base article that you can go to. So if you go to the knowledge base article, you just go to sovos.com forward slash support and you type in 116837 and then hit search, it's going to bring up the knowledge base article. And within there, there's a link back to the Intel website that already has the query defined to search for which chips support ASNI. And looking back, you can see it's going all the way back to Q1 of 2010. So your core i5s, the i7s, Xeons for Sandy Bridge, Sandy Bridge E, and the upcoming Ivy Bridge. So anyone almost a year and a half, two years back can take advantage of this. Yeah, and I guess, you know, for people that are, are chip nerds like me, um, you know, the, the real dif dividing line from Intel's perspective is Core i5 and above on Sandy Bridge chipsets and newer will all support this. So in essence, what you're saying is that the, there's some extra instructions that Intel's building into the chip that almost bake the encryption knowledge into the chip itself rather than having to do it with regular CPU power. So it's just, is it just blazing fast? Oh, it is blazing fast. Um, we actually, we put together a white paper that really talks about the different benchmarks and the benchmarks comparing application usage. So somebody who might be doing anything with video creation or 3D and then also the raw disk IO. And what we saw using the Babco performance tests is that on average, it's going to be about 2 to 3% performance loss even with video creation or any other kind of productivity tools or 3D. Now, using Crystal Disk Mark, just again looking at that raw disk I.O., there was definite, definite um, performance boosts with sequential reads and random reads. Now, you're going to get a definitely performance uh, boost with the sequential writes and random writes, but I found it really interesting that with the reads, which is really when you want the data, when your system's booting, it's going to be a lot faster. And all these tests were done on SSDs or solid-state drives. When it comes to ASNI, it's not only the Windows platform that's going to take advantage of it. Mac users that are using full disk encryption on their MacBook Pro, MacBook Air will also be able to have the ASNI support well, 2 to 3% seems like a pretty small price to pay for data security. I mean, people are always concerned when they hear cryptography, they think of, you know, these crazy math geniuses and these complicated processes and all this kind of stuff. I guess this is just the next step in evolution of making this uh, a trivial operation. Uh, the, the other thing I was really excited about, you know, I got, I got the new iPad with the uh, crazy retina display and all this, and I, I have to move data frequently around because I'm traveling all the time. So some of my data is at work, some of my data is on my laptop, and of course, boy, it sure is convenient to have the iPad and my smartphone and all this kind of stuff, but they're separate islands right now, right? Like Sophos doesn't trust me to be able to work on my presentation on my iPad because it's so portable and so easy to steal, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't have any secure way of transferring data from the Sophos network onto my iPad. And, and it looks like we're trying to solve this with some uh, cloud encryption stuff. Maybe you can kind of give us an overview of what you can do to safely access data from these devices. Yeah, that's right, Chet. Um, they are an island. And what happens is you're going to be on that iPad 
and you're going to be able to access files. Maybe you're using Dropbox or some other kind of cloud storage provider, and you might be getting that from your Windows or your Mac machine, or you might be getting it from a colleague or somebody you need to share data with, but there's really not a lot of security around it. There, there's information out there, and I don't want to kind of pick on any of them, but some of them use encryption, some of them use encryption during the transport and while it's stored, some of them use hashing, but you really want to control how that's being encrypted. You want to be able to have the key in escrow. You want to have the audit proof that the files are encrypted. In this SGN 6.0 release, uh, there's now safeguard encryption for cloud storage. So in its first iteration, though, it is Windows to Windows. And that means from your Windows machine, you can encrypt the file, have Dropbox, Syncit, or any of the other providers. We really went with a nice agnostic approach to pointing to whatever the syncing utility is that they're using. So if you're going to use SkyDrive or Ignite or Dropbox or any of the other ones out there, go right ahead. The file will be encrypted before it leaves your machine, again with AES and I. It will go out there to the storage depot, and then when you go to access it from another Windows machine, it might be a coworker inside or it could be your home machine, then you'll be able to use a portable tool. If you don't have the key in your key ring, you know the password, you use the portable tool, it will open up the file, and you'll be able to edit it and then re-encrypt it up. So this is why um, when it gets pulled down to your machine, it's encrypted. It gets decrypted on your machine. You can edit it, re-encrypt it, and resync it back. So I no longer need to have an inherent trust in the cloud. I mean, that's the thing here is that, uh, you know, there was news this week that Apple's iCloud, which a lot of people are using to put things onto their iPads and iPhones and this type of thing. It's, you know, Apple says, yes, it's encrypted. Well, it's encrypted in transit and it's encrypted at Apple, but Apple has the keys. So you have no way of proving whether anybody actually looked at your data if there's a bad Apple. <laughs> in Cupertino somewhere, <laughs> um, they may have access to your data. And you ha you don't have audit proof to show that it's not true. So this kind of gives you that extra layer, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's some organizations out there that provide this service where they were using one key for all the files that were being encrypted. They also have in their terms of service that if that data is subpoenaed, they're going to surrender it and then maybe notify you later. The other issue is what if they go out of business? There's so many of them popping up like mushrooms that if one of them disappears... And you can't get your data back. Well, if you at least encrypted it before you sent it there, because remember, you're not losing the data. It's not on a memory stick and it slips out of your pocket. You're literally giving it to them. We'll give it to them encrypted. So you said it's Windows to Windows at this point. Obviously, I want this on my phone. I want this on my iPad. You know, when will when, when will we see you know kind of more ubiquity so that I can transfer to these mobile devices? So we already have something for the iOS platform being tested internally at Sophos, and I have it also on my iPhone right now. It works really well. It's been very stable. Uh, you'll be able to either use Dropbox or the iTunes capability of doing file transfers because some apps let you do file transfers to get those files encrypted. And then once that's encrypted on your device. Your, your iPad, your smartphone, you'll be able to then use the Sophos mobile encryption utility, provide a password, just like the example I use on the Windows when you go home, provide the password, you'll be able to read the document, edit the document, and make sure it's safe while it's on there. We do have Android support coming out, but it'll probably be closer to the end of the summer. I was pretty excited about that. And I don't normally, like I said, I don't like to talk about products on the podcast, but this one is pretty cool because, I mean, this solves a real problem I have with trying to be security aware, but yet need the flexibility of being able to access from all kinds of devices. And I, I don't always know where I'm going to be and what kind of access I'm going to have and be able to securely store files in the cloud and then know that whether I'm using my laptop or my mobile device, whatever I happen to be able to get to work when I'm at the airport, 
dashboard or in the taxi cab and be able to still get to that data is really, um, it's exciting for me or I wouldn't have brought it up on the podcast. So I appreciate you sharing your expertise with us, Dave. We both are participating in some B-Sides events. I want to mention before we wrap up here, you'll be doing a presentation April 28th at the Chicago B-Sides. What are you going to be talking about? iOS hash cracking. (laughs) We talk about securing your documents. Now I'm going to show um, how you can get to the master.password on a jailbroken device and crack the hash. And then I'm going to do a tutorial on how to use John the Ripper. Well, and he's going to do hash cracking while his encryption is enabled and his antivirus is on, and yet it still doesn't slow him down any either. So I guess you're proving our points. Um, I will be speaking on April 13th at B-Sides Austin, and quite happy about that. Sophos is sponsoring B-Sides Austin, providing the Wi-Fi and shirts. So if you're coming to B-Sides Austin, please stop by and say hi. Uh, I'll be there for the entire event and uh, hanging out with everyone. And I'll be doing some cloud security training on the 13th, just before lunchtime. So if you have an opportunity to join me, I'm going to share some of my tips and tricks on how we can leverage the cloud, even if you're as paranoid as I am, in a safe and secure manner. So that concludes Software Security Chat Chat 87. As always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available at podcasts.sophos.com on iTunes via RSS. Until next time, stay secure.